Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Good morning, everyone, and happy Valentine's Day, or as my daughter used to say, this is sad, Single Awareness Day. Either way, whatever it is that you're celebrating out there, I am so glad that you're here with us today because I have a fantastic writer on today, Christopher Rice, and if you have never met him before, you're in for a huge treat. And if you haven't listened before, I'm Lisa Kessler, your host, and I also write paranormal romances, and that's how I met Christopher. We were on a panel together, and he's just fantastic. So if you haven't read his books yet, I'm going to read his bio here, and you can get to know him. Christopher Rice is the recipient of the Lambda Literary Award and is the Amazon Charts and New York Times bestselling author of A Density of Souls, must read, guys, Bone Music, Bone Echo, and Blood Victory in the Burning Girl series, as well as Bram Stoker Award finalist, The Heavens Rise and the Vines. He is an executive producer of The Vampire Chronicles and the Lives of the Mayfair Witches, the AMC television adaptations of the best-selling novels by his mother, Anne Rice. Christopher and Anne also penned the novels Ramsey's The Dam, The Passion of Cleopatra, and Ramsey's The Dam, The Reign of Osiris. And together with his best friend and producing partner, New York Times bestselling novelist Eric Shaw Quinn, Christopher runs a production company, The Dinner Partners. Among other projects, they produce the podcast and video network, which can be found at The Dinner Party Show. And I did include a link there right on the Blog Talk site. So if you're listening live or if you're listening later, you can click that anytime and go check it out. I promise they will make you smile. He lives in West Hollywood, California, and writes tales of romance between men under the pseudonym that we're going to talk about today, C. Travis Rice, and you can learn more at his website, which I also included a link right there, so you guys can sign up for his newsletter and see what else is up, and I don't want to delay anymore. Christopher, are you there? I'm here. Thank you. Happy single, what did you call it? Single Awareness Day? Single Awareness Day, yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Sad. (laughs) Well, you know, you mentioned Eric Shaw Quinn, my co-host and producing partner, and he takes the attitude that, you know, if you are single on this day, you are completely off the hook. It's a holiday for you, you know. Oh, so that I, is I true. Given yeah. that I am single, I'm going to lean into the to the holiday side of it. And so anyway, thank you for having me on. It's always good to be here. I enjoy coming on your show. Oh, thank you. I love having you here. And we always, usually the show is 30 minutes, but we always go way over. So I set it for much longer. So we can talk as long as we want today. (laughs) Okay, great. Excellent. So first up, you have a new book. And um, for those, I'm sure everyone has heard the news, but um, Anne Rice passed away before this book came out that you wrote with her, Ramsey's Mm -hmm. The Damn Reign of Osiris. And so do you mm-hmm. want to tell everybody about the book and, and can they read it as a standalone? Do they need to read the other books? Oh, you know, that's always a question that our publisher does not want us to answer honestly and that I feel compelled oh. to answer truthfully. And the answer is yes, they really should. This okay. is really um, a, a series mm-hmm. in, in that sense of the word. I guess the word is serialized, right? The, right. the, the original novel of, 
mom published in, I think, 1990. It was uh, tonally somewhat different from her other work. It was more of an adventure story. It was very um, romantic and galloping and, you know, this is not to diminish any of her other novels, but it wasn't quite as dark as the Vampire Chronicles. It was, it was, a, it was a brighter world. It was set in Edwardian England and it was meant to be a tribute to, stylistically at least, some of the great H. Ryder Haggard tales and Arthur Conan Doyle tales, excuse me, um, that had first sort of explored, you know, the relationship, I think, a somewhat limited relationship between the West and ancient Egypt, particularly during that period of archaeological discovery that was around the Napoleonic era. And, and that gave birth to a sort of body of, of adventure fiction and scary stories that gave birth to what we know today to be the modern mummy story. And mom went to Hollywood, essentially, this was in, I think, the mid to late 1980s, to pitch her take on that, which was, um, while steeped in atmospheric history, very contemporary, very diverse, very inclusive, and very much about the Anne Rice uh, way of flipping the point of view and making the character who was previously dismissed as the monster into the hero and the emotional sympathetic center of the story. And that is what she did with the mummy in that book. Hollywood ultimately didn't bite. So she went and she wrote it as a novel. It was published in 1990. And the idea was that when the mummy wrappings came off, what was underneath was not some growling zombie like monster who just stalked white people for pages and pages. It was this gorgeous, soulful, wise, immortal who had consumed this elixir of life that had allowed him to live for thousands of years. And when he wanted to rest, he would cut himself off from the sunlight and go into his sarcophagus and he would sleep. And you, when, and when you exposed him to the sunlight again, he would rise. And so that was, um, that was the basis of the book in 1990. And what happened in terms of the sort of history of Anne Rice is that a novel called the queen of the damned was published pretty close to the mummy. And it took off on a level that I don't know if anyone could have predicted. It was just a monster bestseller. It changed our lives overnight. They were selling it out of the box in the bookstore. It earned back its <laughs> advance in 24 hours. I mean, it was just the sort of success that writers dream of. You know, I'd, I'd love to have that kind of success. So um, <laughs> nobody wanted, so nobody cared about mummies. All they wanted was vampires. So poor Ramsey right. was shuttled off to the side as this paperback original. And eventually <laughs> The drumbeat for a sequel was so steady and so consistent, and the book sold over a million copies. Yeah. And a few years ago, she turned to me. She'd been trying to get me to develop it with her for television for a long time or for film, you know. And I and I had been like, eh, you know, I don't want it. Um, I was working on other <laughs> things. And then, but when she said, "Let's write a sequel together uh, as a novel," then my ears perked up because I thought that was an exciting opportunity. So we did that with. Um, the Passion of Cleopatra, which came out a few years ago, and then we followed it up with The Reign of Osiris, which came out a few months ago. And and I wanted to ask you because, well, I sort of I sort of already know because it was so fun last time, but <laughs> I asked you about working with your mom and the editing. And I know on Cleopatra, you had told me it was the first time you ever received edits that said more hats. Um, Oh yes. <laughs> yes. So what kind of, what kind of fun editing stories did you get from your mother writing these books? Well, the, you know, the interesting thing, I don't want to give away the central premise of the third book, but it is her idea, 
right? It was what she wanted to do next. She said, I want this to happen. And it's a major, what you'd call a tentpole event in a story. You know, like it is the, the, the event around which everything else is sort of organized narratively. And um, the other side of it was that she would have these fascinating insights. She wouldn't necessarily get very plot heavy with me, you know, in turn, when we were brainstorming mm-hmm. and whatever, because Anne didn't really think in terms of plot. That's not how she organized her stories. Anne thought in terms of the central character, the central point of view, what was extraordinary about them, what would define their narrative voice, all these sort of things. I would be the sort of plot guy saying, well, we need a villain and we need a conflict. We need, you know, I would sound like the obnoxious <laughs> studio executive in the room. Right. right. Where's our narrative tension? Um, and, but what she would say was, she would say, she would give some incredible insight to what someone as old as Ramses might say about the new time period that he found himself in. And she was very committed. The books, as I said, are set in Edwardian England, but also past Edwardian England. We're, we're, we're gearing up for World War I at the close of book two which meant oh, nice. book three was going to have to deal with the war. And I was just sitting there thinking, uh, and she was committed to it. I mean, we could have always put all the characters to sleep for a hundred years and woken them back up with the sun in a different century. But she said, right. no, I really, I want to deal with the war. And she said, the thing that I think that was galvanizing her about that idea was that um, Ramsey's perception of what war was versus what it had become was going to be interesting to explore. And she oh, came up with, mm-hmm. we were sitting around the dinner table, she came up with this line that she wanted to put right in his mouth because World War I is just a horrible loss of innocence mm-hmm. event for the world. I mean, it wiped out a generation of royal families that maybe in some sense, some of them were in need of being wiped out, but it was just a turning point in history that is cloaked in mud and loss and death and grief, you know? So I just thought, how are we going to maintain the galloping romance and elegance of the previous two books in this atmosphere of of just sort of dreadful loss, as I said. But she said, Ramses would look at this, right, this change in warfare, and he would say, the old way of conducting war in my time as a pharaoh was that when the king went on to the field of battle and when the king fell, the battle was lost. Now that's completely gone. The king doesn't go on the field of battle. We've invented these terrible war machines that can make battle last forever. Like he would have these great emotional insights. And so what happened was we began to form a book that was about what it would mean to be an immortal during this time of great loss for all the mortals around you and to feel like you could not intervene, um, that you could not stop it, but that you had to let it unfold, you know, because you know, that would be terrible, a terrible torment. Right. So, but naturally, right. the story that we found was, what is the one way in which they simply must intervene? What is the one thing they must stop? And, you know, without giving too much away, it is somebody else's attempt to introduce a supernatural element into the field of battle. They decide that because they are supernatural beings themselves, they must put a stop to that. They must sort of preserve the sanctity of human events. And so that's, that's where the book took off. And I think that, that's where we found compromise around my complete freak out about having to write a book in World War I. <laughs> I love that. And that kind of leads into my next question was going to be, did you guys have more planned or did you, do you feel like it's 
you know, the nice completion of this series. Well, you know, it's we're ha- I, I'm ha- I'm having one of those moments where people are saying it feels like a nice completion. So that's definitely something that I that I'm listening to. You know, I think that there there are no further plans for books at this time. Um, okay. I think that you know we are. This is you know with immortal characters. There's always that sense they can go on forever, right? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> but at some exactly. Point you have to ask if if you. Do you have the right story? You know, do you have the right story? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I, no plans at this time. But I think um, hoping that people who have not discovered the first one go back and discover the first one because maybe they mm-hmm. want to read it before they read these two. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I thought it would be excruciatingly painful to release a book after she had died. And there were aspects of it that were very painful. Don't get me wrong. But there was also right. this wonderful sense of, you know, she's not gone, right? You know, this exactly. idea that just shortly after her body left us, we had this piece of work to put out into the world and people could congregate around it online and talk about it. You right. know, and I, that was, ironically, it was very healing. I don't use that term frequently or lightly, but it was to, to be able mm-hmm. to have that to talk about rather than just sharing images from her funeral, which was also something we thought was important to do with her readers and the people who loved her work. But we, I'm glad it wasn't the only thing we had to do to keep her memory alive. Exactly. Yes, I agree. And, and not to get, you know, too woo woo out there, but when I got to meet Ray Bradbury, he was talking about the way to be immortal is to be a writer because he said your words right. will live on, you know, and I feel like I, I mean, you know, this, we've talked about it before, but Anne was probably the inspiration behind me writing. And I way back in the beginning mm-hmm. of the internet in the nineties, when they had the user, you know, the net groups and things and, and um, you know, Anne was such a huge inspiration and knowing that she is going on and you know, that, she's not lost. She's not gone. You can pick up her book and she's alive again, you know, and for me, that, mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. powerful. Um, you know, that words, words are powerful and she, she isn't gone. No, I, I think you're right. I think words are very powerful. I really do. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I think that Ray Bradbury is right. It is the way to be immortal. You know, I think art is mm-hmm. the way to be immortal. It doesn't necessarily just have to be writing. That's true. But I think mm-hmm. there is something, even in this media-saturated age in which we live, I think there is something about the intimacy of the written word which allows that right. immortality to thrive to an even greater extent than it would with a movie or a television show or um, a sculpture or a painting. You know, not to diminish any of those things, but there is this sense right. of, particularly because Anne so often wrote in the first person, and so mm-hmm. that was, I think, her, that was when she was at her strongest. It was really her genius was how am I going to channel the first person voice of an extraordinary point of view, of, a, of an exalted, extraordinary, uh, supernatural, otherworldly point of view, and how am I going to make it feel as authentic and real as I possibly can? And so when you're in that, when you're living in that and reading that, it is like she's come alive again. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, and it really is, um, it is a magic and it's kind of interesting talking about the written word and she, 
loved all of these, you know, ancient old things, and you think about digging up a mummy and they find all these hieroglyphics and the person is alive again <laughs> because, you know, you can mm-hmm. transfer these words that are thousands of years old and, you know, and now, yeah. and that's kind of the the mystery behind the whole mummy thing is always that, you know, you accidentally read the text that should never be read and then he's awake, yes. <laughs> you know, kind of <laughs> yeah. magic. Yeah, and I think, you know, and it, there's a, there's a something really sort of, uh, there's a, it's a cautionary tale, um, but it's also, you know, and there's a little bit about it that feels dated in its original form to us today. You know, like, like you know, that brown people are so inscrutable that white people can't come to understand them and educate themselves about them without being destroyed, you know, to be right. productive about it. And I think um, th- there's such a, de- a delightful and a progressive contrast between that and Anne's idea that the past can enfold you with great wisdom and romance and insight, you know, and it, it's, it's sort of like the, the quote that we, you know, we began to use it around her passing and around the images of her passing um, because other people began to use it in writing about her death, but it's a quote from the mummy. And I'm sure you've seen it on our social media posts, which in which she says, or she has a character say, I imagine that heaven is a vast library rather than one dull answer to all our questions, you know? And so it's one of the reasons it was always challenging to describe her as a horror writer, you know, because I think, I think you can find a lot of people who will agree that interview with the vampire reads like a horror novel because it is told from the point of view of an unwilling victim in essence, you know, the extent mm-hmm. to which Louis is willing or isn't willing is sort of up for debate among the fan base, you know, like, but, um, right. <laughs> but when you get into Lestat's point of view in the later novels, when you get into the points of view of people who are reconciling their evil prior nature with, with a, with a value system, with some sort of moral code, when you get to the blood communion in the later books, you're, you're not, you're talking about people who are trying to, not absorb the horror, but, but to, but to uh, contend with it and to make peace with it and to make a life alongside of it, as opposed to, and, and I have no, I don't mean to disparage horror novels. I've written horror novels and I've been, I'm a big fan of, of some of Stephen King's work and other horror novelists, but they are about really having everything torn away from you. You know what I mean? And right. that is a moment. And how you survive. Characters. Exactly. Survival stories. Like think about The Walking Dead where it's just like the question again and again is why do we go on, right? You know, why do we go on? Why keep going when the, everything is falling apart? But with the vampires, I think the it moves past that into, you know, onto a bigger canvas, if you will. Right. Definitely. And I, I wanted to ask you because you were – I w- was poking around your website and online and Anne Rice, of course, mm-hmm. has the people of the page, the big, the big Facebook page. And I saw that you have decided to continue to keep it open and keep conversations going and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. You know, how, how did you yeah. come to that decision or is that what Anne wanted or, or what are your plans? Um, you know, I, I think it is what Anne wanted. I, I have to say, you know, Anne, wasn't planning to go, you know, it was, um, right. you know, there were aspects of her, of her death that were very sudden. And, uh, you know, and so the, the, a specific conversation about the, the Facebook page didn't happen, unfortunately. But what did happen is that 
you know, in her later years, she had been able, she, she hadn't quite been able to keep up with it as much as she had in the past. She was such a prolific Facebook poster. And so she yes, had brought she in a social media team, you know, yeah, she had brought in a social media team, which we're still making use of to sort of keep the page alive. I think um, I saw a responsibility to her fans and to her readers to keep it alive for them because it was such it was so driven by their participation. I mean, it was so – when it was at its peak, Anne was really – Anne really made it personal and intimate and constant. She was very responsive to people. And so mm-hmm. the ideal will be if I can create something in which the community can talk to each other in a respectful way. And so, I, you know, I'm, I, I think what I'm thinking about is I will go on there on a very regular basis, but I will go on there in the short term um, probably to post about – great movies that she loved and great books that she loved. That was the thing that the the team got again and again when they took over. People wanted to know, what is Anne watching? Because she would always go on there and she would post her recommendations. And I think there's a great hunger for that, given how much content there is out there right now. Like We want it curated. We do want recommendations lists because there's you go on Netflix or you go on HBO Max and it's just endless stuff to scroll through. And you're like, somebody tell me what to watch. It's not like the day yes, that we have three networks yes. and two big movies. <laughs> and, one know, channel. <laughs> right. And so she would do that for people. And I think now, you know, I, we want to sort of spotlight and highlight what really impacted her and what she really loved. And, and that was most of my great conversations with her over the past few years were about what we were watching. You know, she would text me and she would text Eric Shaw Quinn and we would have a thread going and she would write. And I didn't like a lot of what she liked and she didn't like a lot of what I liked, but the page will be about focusing on what she really loved. And so that's my plan. But, you know, every day I think what's the best way to keep this um, thriving, you know, and they're open right. to feedback. You know, if people on the page give it to me, I'm open to feedback. So. Yeah, and there is a post on there that I wanted to alert people about that where you were asking for, you know, and quotes that maybe should go, you know, on the side of the mausoleum by stands um, by your dad's poems. And um, Mm -hmm. I was reading through some of those, and there, of course, are many magical amazing quotes that that Anne wrote. But but I want to put in a vote for my favorite. (laughs) Uh, oh, cool. Please but, do. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's from Pandora, which was, you know, one of her other vampire novels that was loosely connected to the, the Chronicles. But it actually was one of my most favorites because her relationship with Marius, it was so interesting. It was one of the only vampire Chronicles focused on how would a deep love survive immortality, you know, and how they would come together and go away and all that kind of, it was really interesting. And she had a quote in Pandora that said, you do have a story inside you. It lies articulate Mm -hmm. and waiting to be written behind your silence and your suffering. And that Mm -hmm. has always haunted me because I feel like that's all the writers, you know, (laughs) we all have to dig into these sore spots and that's where the stories are, you know, and, and I just thought Mm -hmm. that she articulated that so perfectly of, you know, that everyone has a story to tell and that's where it's hidden. (laughs) And I I thought that was, was, so that's my vote. (laughs) 
Okay. I will, I will take note of it. I think you are not the first person to do that quote. I think there are a lot of other people advocating for it too. So, you know, oh, good. we will take Yay. it under advisement for sure. Yeah. Go team yeah. Pandora. <laughs> Go team Pandora. Exactly. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about your new pen name. So when I was reading your mm-hmm. bio, there's all these great books that you've written and, and they're just, fantastic and most of them are in the thriller kind of genre and a couple horror novels but you also had written some really steamy romance novels because I read them so I (laughs) they're highly recommended but now you're bringing out a pin name for that and so do you want to tell everybody what the purpose is and you know what kind of books you're going to be writing under C. Travis Rice Uh, C. Travis Rice is romance between men period and i think the reason i thought the pen it's an acknowledged pen name right because as you said i've already published romance novels so it's not about trying to erect some some cover for the fact that i'm doing this i love romance novels i love romance novel writers i've been a member of the community now for several years and it's one of the best decisions i ever made this uh you know a christopher rice novel can be a lot of different things it could be supernatural it could be a collaboration with Anne. It could be a steamy paranormal romance novel. C. Travis Rice novel is pretty much always going to be one thing. It's going to be a contemporary and watch. Now, in a few years, I'm going to do a historical under this pen name. And I know, throw right? This interview <laughs> off whack. But it, it's going to be a uh, queer male-male romance novel uh, with a contemporary vibe for the foreseeable future. You know, this was really me wanting to do something I had never done before. And to not feel like it needed to be tweaked or changed every time out. And so um, on March 1st, I will be launching the Sapphire Cove series under this pen name. And some of the influencer boxes are landing with bookstagrammers, book talkers now, which has been great to see. And it is, you know, like, as my friend who read it said, you wrote a Nora Roberts novel with two dudes. And I was like, damn right. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what I wanted to do. I wanted it to feel like, you know, and, and so, and I'm working, I'm doing revisions on the second book right now, and I will write them for as long as I humanly can. So I, it's just, it was a, it started as a passion project. It started at the beginning of the pandemic when I couldn't leave the house and I was home alone because I'm single and I have no kids or pets. And I had a lot of time to kill, so I decided to work on two books at the same time. I had I was working on the third Ramsey's book in the morning, and then I would take some sort of break, and then in the afternoon and evenings, I would work on Sapphire Cove. And I just, I started writing it without any real clear plan for what I was going to do with it. I thought maybe I'll, maybe it'll be an indie project, and I'll do it myself. And um, I started having conversations with my friends at Blue Box Press about it. And I had, they're also in charge of the project known as a thousand and one dark nights, which a lot of romance fans know mm-hmm. the cross marketing effort in which a bunch of authors um, publish individual novellas and promote each other. And um, blue box had had a phenomenal success. I think in 2020, it was right around the pandemic with Jennifer Armentrout's from blood and ash. And so they were really, they were moving into standalone titles at a level that they had really done previously. Well, a Thousand One Dark Nights has been their focus, and they had done a few standalones outside of that. But this was really, really got everybody's attention. And so I knew that they would allow it to be 
the type of romance novel that I wanted it to be. And my, my concern was, based on my survey of the marketplace, that while it's been absolutely wonderful to see a lot more LGBT romance happening with, from traditional publishers, mm-hmm. there can be certain rules about the sex. If it's, you know, if it's, and we all know this from romance, we know if it's a mass market, you can have really explicit sex. If it's digital, you can have really explicit sex. But as they raise the format, it, you know, if you're not super established in the genre, if you're trade paperback or hardcover, it starts to turn into metaphors below the belt. And I, w- and I thought, I don't write sex like that. I write, so I wanted it to speechy, uh, romancy read, but I wanted my sex scenes to have a lot of seeds. So right. I knew that Blue Box would be comfortable with that. You know, I knew that Blue Box would, would support me in that. And it's been a wonderful experience so far. I think the, the neatest part about it, which came as a surprise, was that, you know, we were able to – I said I wouldn't sell the audiobook rights unless they agreed to use me as the narrator on the first <gasps> release. And, oh, my gosh. Um, I, I, assume, I assumed everybody would say – that thanks, but no thanks. And, you know, my plan was Eric Sharquin and I have our TDPS podcast recording studio. I was going to take the, we were going to produce the audiobook independently and uh, brilliance jumped. Multiple people actually jumped at the chance uh, to get the rights with me as the narrator. And that was, that felt great. And so I just recently finished recording the, the audiobook for Sapphire Sunset, which will come out as, oh at the same time gosh. as the print book. So, Yeah. I love yeah, it. Congratulations. And it's Thank too you. funny because I had written down here in my notes that I wanted to ask you about narrations because I knew you had narrated a film and um, a documentary. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered if you had ever thought about narrating for your own books. And you're doing it. I love and that. And I'm doing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> you know, it, it, in my head – in my head, I'm doing a terrible job. You know how that is with anybody who's a sort right. of anxious artist. Like, I'm too nasally. I sound like Bucky Bieber. All the things the kids used to say about my voice when I was younger started to come up, you know. But I'll tell you, the, the most interesting part of the experience, you know, has been to read them. This is what the director said to me when I was reading, because the two heroes, one is the sort of big, muscly former Marine, and the other is a sparkly, proud you know, gay man who doesn't care what anybody thinks of his kind of gender presentation. And right. the director said to me, if we had a straight actor read this character the way you're reading them, and I was reading him with utter conviction and authenticity, um, we would probably get criticized, right? We would be accused of, you know, um, a, an unflattering depiction of a gay man. And I was like, you know, just let anybody try to come for me over my own authentic <laughs> depiction of this boy that right. I'm completely crazy about and would chase across a bar if I met him in public, you know, because anyway, so, um, so we'll see. I'm a little, it's, it's a new thing and I'm a little braced and um, audio, uh, audio people can be really particular and specific in their reviews of stuff. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think it's really cool that I always love books when it says narrated by the author. Well, usually I do. Um, <laughs> but I think that you're so close to it and you knew how they sounded in your head. So it's fun mm-hmm. as a listener to, you know, get that, that pure vision of what the author was hearing, you know? Right, totally. Here's hoping. That's my that's my goal. <laughs> that's your plan. 
That's my plan. <laughs> so is it going to be a series then? You said you're already editing book two. It is going to be a series, but I will say this. It will be a series in the way that a romance is a series. You know, I've done some serialized series, like our uh, previous conversation about the Ramsey's books. You know, this is Sapphire Cove is going to be designed for people to jump on at any point in time. And okay. um, what I may do is if I want to continue the stories of earlier characters, that might happen in no things that are contained so that the regular readers can enjoy them. But I think, you know, my, right. I, I love the idea, you know, harkening back to what Nora Roberts did and in some sense with the Chesapeake blue stories, although there is a sort of unifying storyline that, you know, that, that um, with their foster child that kind of unites all of that. So, but really like, I, I, you know, I've, I have had some series where people have said, you got to start at book one. And if you can't get people to start at book one, you don't get the readers. So, right. so I really, the main character is this gorgeous beachfront resort in Orange County. That's really the main character of Sapphire Cove, the main recurring character, because I am a total setting and atmosphere junkie like I I <laughs> often make my reading choices based on where do I want to go do I want to go to the right. southwest do I want to be on the east coast no I don't want to be in the mountain west right now I want to be in Florida you know like I, I just right. love being transported in that way and I love the writers who transport me right right well and I was going to ask you too if you have fun switching hats between writing romance and writing thrillers um, because it's a big genre mm. shift. And so do you, when you sit down at the keyboard, are you, you know, popping off one hat and putting on another? Or, you know, how hard is that for you to shift gears? Well, you know, I have a thriller coming out in May that I also wrote during the pandemic called Decimate, and it's coming out from Amazon Publishing and Thomas and & Mercer. And it was um, much darker than the romances I was working on. And there were times where, to go back to that process I described earlier where you're working on one book in the morning and one book in the evening, if books are different, that's actually easier because you're not doing same, 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 same all day long, right? And that right. shift can happen at the break in the middle of the day. And that was that was the contrast between Ramsey's and um, Sapphire Sunset. But there are times where, honestly, it is a book's level of research that can determine the amount of total focus I have to give it. And so switching back and forth sometimes has to – it doesn't work on a daily basis if the book is really heavy and a lot of stuff that I have to – you know, that afternoon where I would write right. something else is sometimes spent filling in the gaps in my existing research. So that's kind of how Decimate felt. Um, but, you know, all that said, I love to switch back and forth because, like I said, I don't want to get too bored, you know. Exactly. Um, but – I, the best way I find to fine-tune the gears for that switch is in your recreational reading. Like, it becomes a great excuse to, well, I've got to do some romance work, so I'm going to start reading a romance. You know, it, beca it becomes, right. like I said, with the curation thing, it becomes a sort of a guide for you. Yes. And and we we had talked in email, but I I have my first thriller horror coming out in May, and I had written it years ago, oh, but right. I put it in a drawer. Yeah, I put it in a drawer because I've been writing paranormal romances, and you know the agents like you stick with what you're doing. And but now that I'm doing so much more indie, I feel like 
it's time. And as I edit it, I'm like, oh, I miss being scary. This is so fun. So mm-hmm. I definitely am mm-hmm. feeling you on it's nice to have both sides, you know, to have a, a romancy side, but also have a scary side. It's very, it keeps things from being boring for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Congratulations. That's really exciting. I think that, you know, as you probably felt, there's always a weird amount of heebie-jeebies about doing something you've never done before. You know, like... Very scary. But, I, you know, I just... (laughs) I just try to think of Nora Roberts and J.D. Roth, you know, like it's like people are, there's a track record of authors. I don't want to be that author who can only do one thing. You know, maybe it's an ego thing, but I want to be versatile. (laughs) You know, if there's one thing that's really working, you know, you know, if it's working, I I don't want to quit it, you know, or, or betray the readership for it. But at the same time, I want to be able to branch out and experiment. Yes, for sure, because you just don't want to be stagnant. You want to try, you know, new things, and and it is scary, but it's. I think it makes you more well-rounded, right? At least that's what I'm hoping. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hoping for that for you, too. I think that you're going to have fun. Thank you. That's totally my plan. <laughs> So Good. Before we run, before we run out of time, um, I wanted to ask you about um, maybe. I know Anne had a lot of themes in her writing, and I'm sure that comes out in the Ramsey's the Dam book. But how, what do you feel about your themes? Because yours are probably different from your mom's, right? What themes do people find in your books? You know, my agent summed it up about my first manuscript she ever read. She said the premise was secrets can kill. And I think even when I'm writing lighter stuff, and particularly Sapphire Spring, which is the second Sapphire Cove novel I'm working on right now, the the idea is that you have to find a way to be who you truly are or you will not be happy. And in a romance context, you will probably not find love. And that's really – that journey – is what captivates me. It's different from Anne's themes. You're right. Anne always praised me for being a more contemporary writer than she was. She said Mm -hmm. that she didn't have the ability to uh, process her high school through her work, that she didn't really have (laughs) the ability to write about what was happening immediately all around her, that she had to process it through her love of history, through her desire to look back through the mists of history itself. You know, that that was, I, I think ultimately she was processing all of that stuff, but she did it in a very different way. And she didn't really right. write what she called pedestrian realism, you know, which is a, a term that's about, well, it's how a lot of really popular it's stories are. It's the mundane. Are, you know, I woke right. up, I looked, mm-hmm. right, the mundane. In New York world. Or it's laced with the mundane and you find the story that's underneath what appears to be mundane. She was much more about the exalted and the extraordinary point of view. So, but I'm, I'm very much about that. And that's tied up in being a gay man and needing to come out of the closet at a young age, feeling like I needed to at least, um, seeing the costs and consequences of people leading double lives, you know, all of that, all of that is present in my work, even when I am not writing about sexuality specifically. Right. And were you able to merge that with her, you know, with her vision when you wrote with her on these Ramsey's books? You know, I think it was, it was kind of already there in the Ramsey's books because what was fascinating to me about the first novel was that when Ramsey's is reawakened 
in Edwardian London. Um, <laughs> I really need to stop saying that because King Edward had already died by the time the first book. But we're still it's like the King George hadn't really culturally taken over yet. But anyway, in that period, it's still somewhat of a repressive environment. And then in comes this gorgeous, mythical, soulful, impossible, supernatural figure who has none of the social constraints of any of these aristocrats who surround him and his presence and his intrusion into their life upsets all of those oppressive systems. Right. And, and there's a bisexual character, Elliot, who, who becomes more in tune with who he is and explores his sexuality more as a result of meeting something as impossible as Ramsey. So I think, I think that idea was already there. Uh, and certainly I, I tried to bring it out more over the subsequent novels. Right. So you got, she kind of laid a foundation for secrets to be there, and then you got to exploit it, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, you know, um, her theme was much more predominantly, you have to make peace with the fact that we're all going to die. That was really right. what it, I mean, you have to come to terms with mortality. And even the immortals are making peace with the fact that everyone around them is going to die and they're not. And so in some ways, the curse of immortality is more grief than any human would ever endure. And so right. there's a, there is a meeting point for, for those ideas, I think, because you, you mo- you're only going to have so long. So how long, how much time are you going to give to your secrets, you know? Right. And so anyway, right. and I think yeah, I could go on all day, but you I think you get the idea. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here today. It was so much fun and yeah, we could have talked all day, but you'll have to come back again and we'll, we'll talk about more things. <laughs> but, you caught me at peak but, caffeine level. So, yes, thank you for <laughs> indulging me. Right. <laughs> oh, I, it was it was wonderful fun, and um, again, I'm so sorry for your loss, but I do feel very strongly you. that you know Anne didn't leave us; she she left us with a plethora of amazing words for everyone to dive into. And I hope everyone listening Indeed. will go grab the mummy and read them in order because uh, Ramsey's the Dam and the Cleopatra book, they're just, they are fantastic. And I love that you got the opportunity to do that with your mom. What a special thing. It was very special, very special. I feel very blessed. Yeah, well, thanks so much for being here, and everyone go grab the book and watch for Sapphire Sunset. I can't wait to read it, and thanks for being here, Christopher. It was great chatting with you. Thank you, Lisa. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on Book Lights. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.